everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. All right, so we are in week two of a series called Villains of the Bible. And uh, basically, last week, we'll just give a quick recap of what happened last week. We were just talking about how pretty much every human being grapples with the question, and it's a good question, we grapple with the question, how can God allow so much evil? If God is good, why is there so much evil in the world? And that's a human question. I don't think personally that God has any problem that we ask it. The problem comes in that God does not seem obligated to answer it. That seems to be the beef that we have as human beings. God's like, yeah, you can ask the question, but it doesn't mean I'm going to answer it in the way you want. What gets really interesting is when we open our Bibles and we look at what the authors of Scripture say, they're actually not interested in that question. That's what I find fascinating and actually what has given me some relief as a pastor is when I start realizing, well, what are the questions that the authors of Scripture are grappling with? Let's grapple with those. So in the Bible, the authors of Scripture, they don't say, why does God allow so much evil? They say, why do humans allow so much evil? That's what's interesting to them. What is going on, the authors of Scripture say, that humans can sit by while there's so much evil? Now, that is a question that makes you and I very uncomfortable because it means that we're responsible. And we don't like to be responsible as human beings. Just as a broad brush statement, we prefer to blame and hide rather than take responsibility for our part in evil because if we're responsible, it means we can do something about it in the name of Jesus. Now, that's what's interesting to the authors of Scripture, but there's a second thing that's interesting to the authors of Scripture, not so much about humans. What they look at is God does not cause evil. God does not allow evil. What God does, according to the authors of Scripture, is restrain evil. It's like God has God's hand of restraint on us that our world is, in fact, less chaotic than it would be if God was not restraining evil. Now, those of you who may be more skeptical or you're not followers of Christ, you might be listening to that saying, oh, come on, you can't have it every which way you want. That's a very reasonable objection that you would have. I would simply point to our own Hollywood movies of Apocalypse, our end times movies. I'm not talking about the bad fiction like Left Behind. I'm talking about the good fiction like the Book of Eli or like Mad, uh, Mad Max, these, these kind of desolate end times movies where humans are just hunting humans unhinged. That's what society looks like without the hand of God's restraint. And so that's one of the things that's interesting in Scripture. And then the other thing that's, that's not just interesting but incredibly hopeful for us is, okay, so God restrains evil, that's helpful, but God redeems evil. No matter what evil does, it doesn't go so bad that God can't reach further. Uh, the nickname for it is the long arm of the Lord. If you've ever heard of the long arm of the Lord, it's the long arm of the Lord. God's arm can reach further than evil can take anybody. So no matter what you've done, or is, as is often the case, if you have been on the suffering end of someone else's evil, no matter what has been done to you, you are not in a place that God cannot come in and redeem it, make something not just good out of it, but actually inexplicably something absolutely beautiful out of it. That's the testimony of Scripture. So what we're doing this summer is we're looking at the villains of the Bible. We're looking at what happens when a human being gets all caught up in evil, what goes on, and then what does God do 
And uh, one of the finest examples of that is our story today, and it's found in the book of Esther. Esther. Esther's in the Old Testament. Uh, it's the part of the Bible that focuses on the life of the Jewish people before Jesus came. So basically, if you go back to your school social studies and you were studying BC, that's Old Testament. If you're studying AD, that's New Testament. We'll be in the Old Testament. And we read Esther together so that you and I today can learn to look for God's activity because what's fascinating about Esther, there's 66 different books in the Bible. I didn't add up the number of authors, but it's written by like 50-something authors. So yeah, some authors wrote sequels, and then some just couldn't stop writing, like Paul. He just, Paul would write, he's like, oh, I've got another book in me, and he'd write again. But so there's 66 books, there's 50-something authors. There's one book in the whole Bible that never mentions God. It's this book. Esther, God is never mentioned. Now, wouldn't you think if the Bible is about God that it would come in handy that God's mentioned? That's why, just as an aside, in the early church history, there was massive debate among the church. Should we let Esther stay in the Bible? I think we should kick it out of the Bible, people say, because God's not mentioned, and that's not right. But the people that made the argument to keep Esther in the Bible, I'm so glad they did, because what they said is, and I've got this on the slide for you, God is never mentioned, but God is actively present in the book of Esther. God's never mentioned, but is actively present. And what the early church fathers and mothers said came, comes in handy for us today. They said some people live in a similar culture where it's hard to see what God is doing. It's just hard to see the hand of God. It's not overt. I don't know, those of you who are followers of Christ, maybe you see on television or you have a friend that goes to the kind of church where it just seems like they're hanging out with God all the time. They're hearing from God all the time. And you're sitting there saying, is there something wrong with me? Like, am I the problem? Can I just not hear God? The fact is we live in a culture where God's work is more covert than overt, where God's movements are harder to discern uh, it's actually some lyrics from a song. God has unseen hands. They're secretly close. They're silently near. So what we're going to do today is we're actually going to spend the majority of the message today just enjoying the story. Uh, the book of Esther is a very enjoyable story. It was written to entertain, but it was also written to help us discern where God is at work when we don't see God at work. So many followers of Christ, we want to know the will of God. And I just want you to know as a pastor, it's not that easy to discern. There are some things that are easy to discern. No, you should not spit on your neighbor's dog. That's easy. You don't need a debate on that. But a lot of our life is spent, followers of Christ, uh, and, and by the way, those of you who are not followers of Christ, this might be helpful to you as you grapple with your faith or what you feel like is your lack of faith. Those of us who are in the church, we grapple with it too. It's very difficult to always know what to do, to always know what God wants. And as we'll look at in the story of Esther, sometimes we don't know when an event is from God and when it's coincidence. And we struggle to figure it out. That's Esther. So Esther was written. So here's what we're going to do is I'm going to kind of tell it. And then once in a while, we'll pause and we'll read it. 
And if you are used to assuming that at the end kind of gives us things to think, like sometimes, right? Like I do this, other preachers do this, is we share the scripture and then we say, well, here's what we should all think about it. This isn't one of those messages. This is a message where we're going to enjoy the story. And right when you think you're really getting hungry, I'm just going to crash the plane. I'm going to say, well, here's one or two things to take away. And then you can wrestle with it during the week. You're welcome. Uh, that's, that's what's going to happen. Okay, so our story starts with a king. It's set in Persia. So the first thing you know is Esther is not set on the home turf. It's an away game. The Jews are uh, playing the away game. The, the crowd is hostile. It's set in Persia after the exile, for those of you who are Bible nerds. Xerxes is king, and one of Xerxes' favorite hobbies is getting drunk. There's no other way to say it. One of the common themes in Scripture is what uh, a guy, who, he, he gets drunk and then he gets dumb as rocks. Um, that might be a disrespectful way to talk about a king, but it's just factual. It's Xerxes gets drunk for many days in a row and then he does stupid things. So the story just starts right out of the gate. Xerxes having a party with his entourage, gets drunk, and then decides what he wants to do is parade his wife in front of his drunk friends and so he, he, he calls for his wife. He's like, hey, her name's Vashti. Hey, Mrs. Vashti Xerxes, he says, why don't you come wear something skimpy and just kind of dance in front of my drunken friends and me? Let's see what happens. Now, Vashti, his wife, is clearly a woman of dignity, and she refuses. So Xerxes suddenly realizes that his fragile manhood is in jeopardy. And what is going to happen in Persia, Xerxes asks himself, if women suddenly realize that men can't just boss them around? So Xerxes, in his drunken state, issues an edict for all Persians. And I wish I was making this up, but the king's edict is basically this. All men get to boss the women in their lives around the end. Like, you can read it in, when you go and read Esther this week, you will see this, that's the edict. All men in Persia get to boss the women in their lives around the end. That's almost verbatim how it went. Now, what's funny about this, by the way, is one of the great joys of Esther is all the irony that is in it. The, the author intentionally puts ironic moments in it. Uh, there's also uh, a lot of uh, coincidence in the life of Esther, and we'll, we'll see that here in a bit. So one of the great ironies is, is Xerxes says women don't get to boss men around, and then for the rest of the story, he gets bossed around by a woman. It's just one of the great delights of the story. So, okay, well, obviously he's done with wife number one. If she's not just going to do whatever he wants whenever he wants, he divorces her, and Vashti, like many middle-aged women, f finds herself on the out of a, of a powerful man at a whim when he's bored with his wife. We never hear from her again. And so then the king is like, oh, I need a new wife. And she was too old. I need someone that has less agency over their life. I'll find someone half their age. This is such a cliche story of men in power trading in wife 1.0 for a fresher, younger model. So he needs a new wife. So he forms a harem, which is just a collection of women. And he holds a beauty pageant. Now, at this point, you're getting the idea that Xerxes is one of those creepy middle-aged men who hang out backstage at beauty pageants. Yes, he is. So the king forms a part beauty pageant, part reality show, and the young women start an extensive six-month beauty routine of oils and lotions and facials, the whole bit, ready to be paraded in front of the king so he can choose wife 2.0. Now, there happens to be a young, beautiful woman in the harem named Esther. 
And at this point in the story, the author, it's almost like he beckons us out of the room as the audience. He's like, hey, audience, come over here. I'm going to give you a little inside information. And it's, it's not quite written that way, but if you read it, it's almost like the author is lowering his voice because he's giving us a secret. And he says to us in the story, he says, hey, Esther is Jewish. Esther is Jewish. But the way he says it, you know that that's a secret. Like the inference is it's a perilous thing to be Jewish at that time in Persia. And then while the author is having an aside, just like any good preacher does, he has an aside to the aside. And while we're off, off script here, the author has us, he says, hey, here's another piece of in interesting information. Esther has a close relative named Mordecai. This is a guy. Now, some people think that Mordecai is Esther's cousin. Other people say it's Esther's uncle. It doesn't matter. What matters is Esther's an orphan, and Mordecai took her in and raised her from a very young age when she was a little girl to the fine young lady adult that she is now. And there's obviously in the story a very tender relationship between Mordecai and his close relative Esther. He's very protective of her. She looks up to him. And so the author, he does the first aside. He's like, hey, there's a girl in the beauty pageant reality show. Her name's Esther. She's Jewish. Don't tell anybody. It's our secret. And then he says, hey, while I've got your attention, Mordecai, her uncle, he was just sitting in the city court gates, as you do, just hanging out. And he overheard two court officials plotting to assassinate King Xerxes. They're actually plotting to take the life of the king. So Mordecai hears this plot and sends word to warn the king, hey, king, these two guys, he even names, he, he's an informant. He turns in their names. These two guys are out to kill you. Just wanted you to know and so the king arrests these guys, puts them on trial, finds them guilty, and then impales them on a stake. I don't make it, it's in there. It's the preferred method of killing people in Persia in the day. Now, here's what's interesting about the aside to the aside. It's sort of written like it's a coincidence. It's like, oh, Mordecai just so happened to be at the right place at the right time. Wouldn't you know it? And he overcame this and he saved the king's life. Here's what's interesting is the king is such a narcissistic egomaniac. He's only really able to notice what's right in front of him at the time. And most of the time, it's a glass of wine. That's mostly, or some hot young girl. That's usually, like, he is about as base as you can imagine a person can be. And so he forgets Mordecai. So the, the, the people who go around and follow the king and write down everything the king does, that thing there, that journal of the king, that's called the annals of the history of the king. So they make a note in the annals that Mordecai saved the king's life. So if you're looking through the recent history of the king, it's like day one, king got drunk. Day two, king got drunk, had a party. Day three, still having the same party, never really sobered up, tried to get his wife to come, she wouldn't do it. That's really, like the king doesn't do much. But then like day six... Mordecai thwarts the assassination plot and they record it. What's interesting though is the king never thanked Mordecai. There's no record in there. He didn't, he didn't like give him a bar of gold or buy him a Ferrari, anything like that. Just as an aside, I have an uncle that used to work for the Sultan of Brunei. It's pretty wild. He was his personal assistant to Prince Joffrey, the, the Sultan's brother. And one day my uncle was walking, this is a true story, was walking along and he saw one of the princesses fell in the pool and he jumped in to rescue her. Now, he would say he didn't really save her life. She wasn't really at risk of drowning, but it was just like an impulse of a dad. He went in to rescue her, and as he did, the Rolex watch that Prince Joffrey had given him was ruined. And by the time my uncle got home, there was a brand new BMW in the driveway with a thank you card on it. That's wealth. That's wealth. 
Anyway, that was an aside. Uh, so it's odd. My point is, it's odd that King Xerxes wouldn't like do something in gratitude, but he's just drunk and narcissistic and he forgets. Okay, meanwhile, King Xerxes has an advisor named Haman, and he's now known all through history as Vile Haman. It's very Shakespearean, this story. Haman's one of those politically motivated people who will do anything to get to the top, and Haman manipulates the king to issue another edict in Persia. And here's the edict. Every Persian needs to bow down in homage to Haman anytime Haman's out on the street. That's the edict. Like Haman catches Xerxes while he's drunk and he says, I'd like you to issue an edict. And the king's like, oh, that sounds perfectly reasonable. And he now makes it, writes it into law that anytime Haman and his entourage are just out and about in the marketplace, everyone has to stop what they're doing. They have to bow down and pay homage, obsessions to Haman. Isn't that the most absurd thing. As you might imagine, Haman, the egomaniac, starts making trips to the market more and more. He's really enjoying this new edict. So Haman's sitting around, he's watching Netflix, he's kind of bored, he's like, I think I'll go to town and get some milk. And he gets on his horse and he gets his entourage and he just enjoys walking through the market and all of the people suddenly have to stop what they're doing, they have to bow down to Haman. And you know, Haman's the kind of guy that he sees a group of people having a private conversation so he steers his horse to them just to make them bow down. He's that guy. You know that guy. We, we all know a guy like this. So here we are. Everyone is bowing down to Haman except one guy. There's this one guy that will not bow down to Haman, and it just so happens that that's Mordecai. Mordecai will not bow down. And Haman's talking to his entourage. He's like, does Mordecai have a bad back? Did he just get like, maybe he just had knee replacement surgery? And uh, Haman's honor is like, no, no, Mordecai can touch his toes. Like, he does daily yoga. He's as limber as Simone Biles. He won't bow down because he's Jewish. That's why he's not bowing down to you. He's one of those weirdos that believes that there's this one invisible God that you'll never see. And he only bows down to that God. This is an obscure reference, but I'm doing it mostly for me and for the three of you that enjoy it. Mordecai is basically the Andy Sandberg of the story. He's not part of your system. He's throwing it on the ground. Anyone? Like, thanks, just a couple of us. You can look it up later. You can Google Andy Sandberg, throw it on the ground, and you'll just, you'll thank me after that. So, okay, everyone's bound down, one person's not. This just sticks right in Haman's craw, and he cannot let it go. Have you ever had it where it's like that, where you, you, oftentimes this can happen, like you hear 10 nice things, you hear one bad thing, and you just obsess over that bad thing. That's Haman. And when Haman figures out that Mordecai's Jewish, Haman is already racist. He's already an anti-Semite. So he decides to get the king to issue another edict. And here's the edict. Every Jewish human being within reach of Persia is to be murdered and killed, slaughtered. Men, women, children, every single, because one Jew won't bow down to me, I'm going to eradicate every Jewish person off the face of the Persian Empire, including kids and babies, all of it. Haman is a full-blown pathological narcissist. He's diabolically evil, so much so that he decides to play a game with this. 
He gets the king to issue the edict. The king is writing the edict, and Haman's like, what day do I want all the Jews killed? I know what I'll do, Haman says. I'll roll a dice. It's like a villain out of James Bond. Just, and he rolls a dice, he says, whatever number the dice, or the die lands on, that's the day of the month we're going to murder the Jews. Just, it's just a jerk. So that happens, and, and Mordecai gets word of the edict, and he immediately goes into mourning. Mordecai's like, what have I done? Like, maybe I, maybe I should have bowed down. Suddenly, all of my people's lives are like, because of me, innocent lives are lost. Uh, one of the reasons I love the book of Esther is because it helps you wrestle with how do you practice your faith in the marketplace? How do you practice your faith in a culture that does not share your values? And this is Mordecai. When do you stand up for God and when do you be savvy and do something different? So Mordecai is wrestling with this. So he sends message to his cousin Esther. Who, By the way, by this point in the story, Esther, by coincidence, has won the beauty contest. She's the most beautiful young lady and she's now the queen. She's now Queen Esther. So Mordecai is thinking to himself, I, I bet Esther could appeal to the king for the Jewish people. I'm going to try to set up a meeting. But much like Vashti, the first wife, Esther doesn't really have much agency over her own life. She's really more of a, a, a glorified sex slave than she is an actual spouse. And Mordecai's confused if he thinks that she can overturn the edict, so much so that he doesn't realize that he can't just knock on the palace door and ask to see his close relative. So they have to go through side channels, kind of like the way uh, JFK and Khrushchev communicated during the Cold War, back channels. That's what they use. So our story picks up, we'll have the scripture on the screen, when Mordecai and Esther are using back channels to talk about what they're going to do to save their people. All right, verse 6. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay in the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show Esther and explain it to her. And he told him, the, the messenger, to instruct her to go into the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead with him for the people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. You're getting more of a picture of Xerxes and what a, what a pathological narcissist he is, that even when you go meet with the king, you don't know if you're going to end with your life intact. And it's all on his whim. Those of you who enjoy the movie Gladiator, it's one step from this. And this is what Esther is saying to Mordecai. She's like, you think that I have a thumbs up? I can just as easily have a thumbs down based on the whim of the king. Verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, oh, by the way, those of you who are not followers of Jesus, those of you who maybe you're newer to church, what we're about to read are some of the most comforting passages to Christians for the last 2,000 years. 
This next text we're about to read, what Mordecai says back to Esther, these are words that Christians have hung our faith on ever since these words were, were written. I'll show us kind of why that is. All right, verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now, there's two phrases in here that Christians have hung the hat of our hope and our faith on for 2,000 years. The first phrase, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. The simple idea that even if something bad happens to me, God will protect us. All through human history, as Jewish people have been picked on by cultures, as Christian people have been picked on by cultures, Christians will say things like, even if I, uh, my life is in trouble, God is still good. And that has gotten us through some pretty dark times. And that's been a steady testimony through Scripture all the way to the book of Revelation. But this second one, this wonderfully clunky sentence, this grammatically awkward statement, and who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. It's clunky, right? Like it's, it's hard to say. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. It's the simple idea that sometimes you and I are in the situation we're in because that's just life and that's coincidence. But sometimes... You and I are in the situation we are in because God has quietly orchestrated the events behind the scenes for God's will, for God's sovereignty, for God's reasons. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. This is one of the things that Christians wrestle with, right? Am I in this position because that's just the way life rolls or is God orchestrating things? And most of us are grappling with which one it is. I used to live with a roommate named Joel, and he would go around the house. He's like, ah, oh, I don't know if I'm Job or I'm Jonah. Am I being persecuted for being faithful? Am I running from God? I don't know. And I think that's, that's the struggle for all of us to try to figure out, is God orchestrating? Because listen, God orchestrates events. It doesn't mean God orchestrates every event. We are not from the Reformed tradition in our church. We don't believe that every little jot and tittle of life is perfectly orchestrated by God. We don't believe when you trip over, you're just glad you got it over with. That's not how we operate. We believe that God has a grand will where God is orchestrating, but there's a whole lot of human freedom in between where evil is involved and malice Am I Job or Jonah? But what if God has put you, whatever you're facing right now, what if God has put you in that position for such a time as right now? What if your life isn't an accident and happenstance, but is orchestrated by a silent hand of providence? Who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And there's a Christian singer-songwriter named Rich Mullins. Uh, he tragically died young in the 1990s, and that was a long time ago, and he remains my favorite singer-songwriter. The way he would construct a lyric, the way he would write about God, but also the instrumentation, he would reach back to Appalachian old instruments in Appalachia and pull them and put them into pop music. 
And he has a song that features Esther where this phrase, and who knows but that you have come into your royal position for such a time as this. It's a clunky phrase. He squeezed it in the lyric of a pop song. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put the lyrics on the screen because it's a bit hard to hear it, so you can kind of read along. Those of you in the room with me, you get to listen to it. Those of you online, I'm really sorry to say that YouTube and Facebook have algorithms that when they notice playing a, a, a commercial song, they shut down our feed. Talk about Big Brother. And we would, you would lose the rest of the service. So online, you get 26 seconds of silence in the room. You get to enjoy the song. Online, you've got just enough time to Google the song, Who God is Going to Use by Rich Mullins. Let's take a listen in the room. You've got to give credit to a guy that can squeeze that line into that song. All right, online, you can Google that song. If our hosts are nimble, they might even think about putting the YouTube link in the chat for you. It's a great song. All right, so then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, she says, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Another great, rich tradition in our faith of followers of Jesus who basically do the right thing regardless of how it affects them personally. It's one of the ways you know you're growing in your faith, that you're willing to sacrifice your personal safety and your personal security and comfort for the sake of Jesus. So Mordecai and the Jewish people in exile, they fast and pray, and Esther, she's smart, she's savvy, she sets up a, a, set of, a pair of banquets. She knows that she can't just go into the king and make a request, so she kind of woos the king, she kind of flirts with him, and when she goes in, he lowers the scepter, what can I do for you, Queen Esther? By golly, you're looking beautiful today, he says. She says, I would like to host a banquet, and I want to set a table for two but I don't want to sit with you. I'm going to be the waitress. You can notice me. I'll be all flimsy dressed and maybe you can even pinch my rear end. By the way, none of this is in the Bible. I'm adding all of it. I'm adding all of it. But this is the relationship they have. She says, but it's a table for two. It's you at one end. It's Haman, your buddy Haman. I'd like him to come too. And let's have a banquet. And the king's like, I like a banquet because that means more alcohol for daddy. And so the king's always up for a drinking party. Now, you think I'm exaggerating that part? Go back and read Esther. I'm not exaggerating the drinking. The king's always up for a drinking party. His whole life philosophy is it's five o'clock somewhere, and so he's thrilled. Meanwhile, it just so happens that Haman has no idea that Esther's close relative is Mordecai. He, Haman just doesn't know that. So he's all excited that Queen Esther is throwing a banquet just for two people, two men, her husband and Haman. So he's preening around like a peacock to all his friends. Hey guys, only two people got invited. I don't know if I brought this up, but I may, may have mentioned it. Sorry if I've already said it, but the king's coming and I'm coming too. And so the first banquet, it just goes swimmingly. Esther provides a feast. She looks gorgeous. Xerxes and Haman are drunk and happy, and Xerxes says, okay, Esther, you did this beautiful thing for me. What can I do for you? What would you like? 
Xerxes knows it's tit for tat. He, he knows how it goes. Esther's playing it coy. She knows how to build anticipation. And she says, here's what I'd like, my king. If you would indulge me, I would love to throw a second party for you and Haman. The king's like, another party? Yes, let's do that. That would be great. Now, that night... At the end of the party that night, it just so happens, it's just coincidence, it just so happens, the king can't sleep. He's tossing and turning, probably because he ate anchovies with Kalamata olives and the mac and cheese casserole. It was the combination of all three. He's tossing and turning all night. And this king, he's not, a very, he's not very good with initiative. So he calls his attendant. He's like, I can't sleep. What do I do? And the attendant's like, well, you know, some people, king, read a book when they can't sleep. Oh, okay, yeah. And the attendant says, would you like me to get you a book? Yeah, yeah, get me a book, the king says. And the attendant says, well, what would you like to read about? And the king says, and I quote, I'd like to read about me. It's a true story. And so they get the annals of the king. That journal I was talking about where they follow him around and write everything that he does. And he reads about himself. What an unhinged narcissist this guy is. He reads about himself and he's turning the pages and there, oh, he had a party and oh, he, he drank too much and oh, he never sobered up. But then on page five, he sees in the annals, it just so happens, it's kind of a weird coincidence. He sees that, that oh, Mordecai saved my life. I'd forgotten about that. And he calls his attendant in and he says, hey, did we ever do anything to reward Mordecai? Do we send him a thank you note? Do we do anything? And the attendant's like, no, no, sir, we, we haven't done anything. Okay, hey, make a note in the morning when I get up and go about my day, put it on my to-do list. I'm going to do something nice for Mordecai. Meanwhile, Haman goes home from that same party, sleeps like a baby, wakes up the very next day, and he's so happy. And he decides to start the day with people bowing down to him. So he gets on his horse, and our story picks up in Esther 5, verse 9. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and he observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, and he went home, and calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above every other noble and official. And that's not all, Haman added. And at this point, his friends are like, we've heard about your wealth. We've heard about your sons. And he says, and that's not all. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she's invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all of this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to the height of 50 cubits, 75 feet, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Like it's just like a thing you do. And then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. And this suggestion delighted Haman, and he had a pole set up. Great. So the day comes, and the king wants help brainstorming how to honor Mordecai. So he asks his attendant, are any of my advisors nearby? Because the king has no initiative. He can't think of what to do. And the attendant said, actually, sir, Haman is always around. Haman, it just so happens that Haman happened to be like a 30-second convenient walk away. And so the king summons Haman. Hey, Haman, the king says, what do you think should be done for a person the king wishes to honor? 
And Haman's all, who would the king possibly want to honor more than me? And here's what he says, Esther 6 verse 7. For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn. Like for some reason, king's sweat is cool. And a horse the king has ridden, you know, one with a royal crest placed on its head, and then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes and let the prince, let them robe the man the king delights to honor, lead him on a horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor, over and over and over again. Go at once, the king commanded Haman, get the robe and the horse, do just as you've suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you've recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse and he rode Mordecai and he led him on horseback through the city streets proclaiming, this is what's done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and he told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And his advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Oh, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Thanks, wife. Like just a a day before, the wife's like, you're the best. And now she's like, hey, man, I've already started dating. You've got one... You're one foot in the grave. By the way, we'll get to this, but all of the things that are done that are undone, all the reversals, it's all there in Esther. So Haman gets back from that little exercise just in time to rush over to Esther's second banquet. Remember, he he still is not aware of Mordecai and Esther's relationship. So he goes to the banquet. He's like, well, at least I'll get a nice meal before things are really bad. And uh, Esther makes the banquet last two days and she waits till the king is properly soused and she says, he says to Esther, okay, Esther, come on, two banquets, let's go. What do you want? What do you want? What can I, I'll do anything for you. And Esther 7, verse 3, then the Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Now, if we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. And Esther said, An adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. And Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage and he left his wine. That's how you knew he was really anxious. He left his alcohol behind, left his wine, went out into the palace garden. But Haman realized that the king had already decided his fate and he stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. And just as the king, it just so happens, just coincidental, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. Now, Haman was not sexually aggressively trying to uh, get Esther. He was just begging for his life, but it's not a good look. And the king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she's with me in the house? And as soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. 
Then Harbinger, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, you know, it just so happens that there's a pole reaching a height of 50 cubits. Right by Haman's house, he had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. And the king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and then the king's fury subsided. Now, we are out of time, and there's a lot more story. You're going to have to read it for yourself. We're about two-thirds of the way through. So I kind of warned us that most of today would be enjoying the story. I'm going to invite our team to come out and prepare as we worship. But I do want to leave us with a couple of things that I hope will provoke you to chase these more in your life this week. First of all, um, those of you who've been around Discovery for a while, you know that we are fascinated not just with what's in the Bible, but the way it's structured. And so we have a picture for you. Uh, Esther is a perfect chiasm. It is structured as a perfect chiasm. And I don't expect you to be able to see this, but you can Google Esther and chiasm. And what's beautiful about a chiasm is the very first thing that is destroyed is the very last thing that's resolved. And then the second thing that's damaged is the second last thing that's resolved all the way to the center. In fact, Esther is actually written where the middle sentence of the book is the turning point. That's the thesis where Mordecai is honored by Haman. That's where everything turns. You even noticed as I was reading the story, you're like, wow, Haman's wife is kind of fickle. She went from being all on his side to saying you're doomed very quickly. That's because it happened just before the turning point. And so the author of Esther is structuring it in such a way to remind us that no matter how bad things get, they can be made right again. Now, of course, of course, our lives are not a Disney story. They don't end like Brady Bunch. It's not that simple. But here's what I want to leave us with is the simple question of when is coincidence actually God and when is it actually coincidence? Right? When is God involved and when is it just that's the way things go? And I think more disturbingly, sometimes as Christians, the harder question, when am I placing my own bias on the situation and reading God into it where God's not doing it? These are not easy questions. But these are questions I hope we wrestle with as a church. Because we live in a culture that is not prone to point out the work of God in our life. That's our job. That's what we are here to do, not just for ourselves, but to show God to other people. That's why almost every time our staff meet as a church, we spend time saying, where have you seen God at work in our life? Because without asking that question, we're prone to not notice. So I want to leave you as we prepare for worship with that question, where are you seeing God at work? And what I've noticed in my life is I've been on like a 10-year journey with that question, is the more I ask it, the more I notice God. Just the discipline of day after day saying, where's God at work? Where am I seeing God do work? Where is God wanting me to be a part of it? I'm going to invite us to stand, those of us in the room, those of us who are able to stand, go ahead and stand. And just this challenge from the book of Genesis where Jacob woke up from his sleep and he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. We want to be a people who have a heightened awareness to the goodness of God. And that's one of the reasons we sing, because it heightens our awareness. So if you'd pray with me now, and then let's continue to worship. Father, thank you that you are good and that you are present. And I confess, Lord, that there are so often in my life, I just don't notice you. Um, I, I've even gotten frustrated wishing you would speak up louder. You'd stop tiptoeing around as much. 
what I confess in the last 10 years or so of my life, I've come to realize that it's my lack of awareness, not your lack of presence. Not that things always go our way, not that we always know what to do, but that you are always with us in it all. Whatever it is we're going through, you are there. So thank you, Lord, even for the gift that we can worship you as a way of remembering that you are with us. Help us to see your hand this week, we pray in Jesus' name.